Section 4 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Benjamin Franklin, Part 2. But it was not as a public-spirited citizen, nor as a successful man of business, nor even as a scientific investigator that Franklin earned his permanent fame. In each of these respects he has been surpassed by men of whom little is known. These activities might have elevated him into notice and distinction, but would not have made him an immortal benefactor to his country. It was his services as a diplomatist and a political oracle, united with his patriotism and wisdom, that gave to him his extraordinary prominence in American history. It should be remarked, however, that before his diplomatic career began, Franklin had become exceptionally familiar with the affairs of the colonies. We have already noted his appointment as postmaster of Philadelphia in 1737. This experience led to his employment by the postmaster general of the colonies in regulating the accounts of that widely extended department, and to Franklin's appointment in 1753 to the head of it, which greatly increased his specific knowledge of men and affairs throughout the whole land. Besides this, he had gained some political experience as a member of the Provincial General Assembly, of which he had been clerk for twenty years and thus was well acquainted with public men and measures. The assembly consisted of only forty members, who were in constant antagonism with the governor, James Hamilton, whom the Pens, the proprietaries of the province, had appointed to look after their interests. This official was a narrow-minded, intriguing Englishman, while the sons of William Penn themselves were selfish and grasping men, living in England, far distant from their possessions, and regarding themselves simply as English landlords of a vast estate. Under the royal charter granted by Charles II to William Penn, his heirs exacted £30,000 yearly from the farmers as rent for their lands, more than they could afford to pay. But when, in 1756, at the beginning of the Seven Years' War, French and Indian hostilities put the whole province in jeopardy, and it became necessary for the provincial legislature to tax the whole population for the common defense, the governor thought that the estates of the proprietaries should be exempted from this just tax. Hence, a collision between the legislature and the governor. The Quakers themselves, in accordance with their peace principles, were opposed to any war tax, but Franklin induced the General Assembly to raise £60,000 to support the war, then conducted by General Braddock, while he himself secured a large number of wagons for the use of the army across the wilderness. Meanwhile, the Assembly was involved in fresh disputes with the governor. Although the Assembly taxed the proprietaries but a small proportion for the defense of their own possessions, the governor was unwilling to pay even this small amount, which so disgusted Franklin that he lost his usual placidity and poured out such a volley of angry remonstrances that the governor resigned. His successor fared no better with the angry legislature, and it became necessary to send someone to England to lay the grievances of the colonies before the government, and to obtain relief from Parliament. The fittest man for this business was Franklin, and he was sent as agent of the province of Pennsylvania to London, the assembly granting £1,500 to pay his expenses, which with his own private income enabled him to live in good style in London and set up a carriage. He held no high diplomatic rank as yet, but was simply an accredited business agent of the province, which position, however, secured to him an entrance into society to a limited extent, and many valuable acquaintances. The brothers Penn, with whom his business was chiefly concerned, were cold and haughty, and evaded the matter in dispute with miserable quibbles. Franklin then resolved to appeal to the Lords of Trade, who had the management of the American colonial affairs, and also to the King's Privy Council. This was in 1757, when William Pitt was at the height of his power and fame, 
cold, reserved, proud, but intensely patriotic, before whom even George the Third was ill at ease, while his associates in the cabinet were simply his clerks, and servilely bent before his imperious will. To this great man Franklin had failed to gain access, not so much from the minister's disdain of the colonial agent as from his engrossing cares and duties. He had no time, indeed, for anybody, not even the peers of the realm, no time for pleasure or relaxation, being devoted entirely to public interests of the greatest magnitude, for on his shoulders rested the government of the kingdom. What was the paltry dispute of a few hundred pounds and a distant colony to the Prime Minister of England? All that Franklin could secure was an interview with the great man's secretaries, and they did little to help him. But the time of the active-minded American was not wasted. He wrote for the newspapers, he prosecuted his scientific inquiries, he became intimate with many eminent men, chiefly scientists, members of the Royal Society like Priestley and Price, professors of political economy like Adam Smith, historians like Hume and Robertson, original thinkers like Burke, liberal-minded lawyers like Pratt. It does not seem that he knew Dr. Johnson, and probably he did not care to make the acquaintance of that overbearing Tory and literary dogmatist, who had little sympathy with American troubles. Indeed, his political associates among the great were few, unless they were patrons of science who appreciated his attainments in a field comparatively new. Among these men, he seems to have been much respected, and his merits secured an honorary degree from St. Andrews. His eminent social qualities favored his introduction into a society more cultivated than fashionable, and he was known as a scientific rather than a political celebrity. His mission then was uphill work. The pens stood upon their prerogatives, and the lords of the committee for plantations were unfriendly or dilatory. It was nearly three years before they gave their decision, and this was adverse to the Pennsylvania Assembly. The Privy Council, however, to whom the persistent agent appealed, composed of the great dignitaries of the realm, decided that the proprietary estates of the pens should contribute their proportion of the public revenue. On this decision, Franklin, feeling that he had accomplished all that was possible, returned home in 1762, little more than a year after the accession of George III. Through the kindness of Lord Bute, the king's favorite, Franklin also secured the appointment of his son to the government of New Jersey. This appointment created some scandal, and the pens rolled up their eyes, not at the nepotism of Franklin, but because he had procured the advancement of his illegitimate son. Franklin, during his absence of more than five years, had been regularly re-elected a member of the Assembly, and he was received on his return with every possible public and private attention. He had hoped now for leisure to pursue her scientific investigations, and had accordingly taken a new and larger house. But before long, new political troubles arose between the governor of Pennsylvania and the legislature, and, what was still more ominous, troubles in New England respecting the taxation of the colonies by the British government, at the head of which was Grenville, an able man but not far-sighted, who in March 1764 announced his intention of introducing into Parliament the bill known as the Stamp Act. To this famous bill there was not great opposition, since a large majority of the House of Commons believed in the right of taxing the colonies. Lord Camden, a great lawyer, took different views. Burke and Pitt admitted the right of taxation, but thought its enforcement inexpedient, as likely to alienate the colonies and make them enemies instead of loyal subjects. At this crisis appeared in America a group of orators who at once aroused and intensified the prevailing discontents by their inflammatory speeches, in much the same manner that Wendell Phillips and William Lloyd Garrison, seventy years later, aroused public sentiment in reference to slavery. James Otis, the lawyer from Barnstable on the shores of Cape Cod, who had opposed the writs of assistance, led the van of these patriots, an impassioned orator, incapable of cold calculation, 
now foaming with rage and then desponding not steadfast in conduct yet by flashes of sagacity lighting the people along their perilous ways combining legal learning with speculative opinion he eloquently maintained that there is no foundation for distinction between external and internal taxes that the imposition of taxes in the colonies whether on trade on land or houses or floating property is absolutely irreconcilable with the rights of colonists as british subjects or as men and that acts of parliament against the fundamental principles of the british constitution are void more influential and more consistent than otis was samuel adams a lawyer of boston a member of the massachusetts assembly at that time about forty years of age a political agitator a puritan of the strictest creed poor and indifferent to money and incarnation of zeal for liberty a believer in original inherent rights which no parliament can nullify a man of the keenest political sagacity and management and of almost unlimited influence in massachusetts from his long and notable services in town meeting as writer in the journals of the day and actor in every public crisis eleven years younger than he was his cousin john adams a lawyer in quincy the leading politician of the colony able and ambitious patriotic and honest but irascible and jealous of whom i shall have more to say hereafter of about the same age as john adams was patrick henry of virginia a born orator but of limited education he espoused the american cause with extraordinary zeal and as in the matter of the virginia tax law was vehement in opposition to the stamp act as an unconstitutional statute which the colonies were not bound to obey christopher gadsden of south carolina too was early among the prominent orators who incited opposition to the stamp act and other oppressive measures these men were the great pioneers of american independence by their ceaseless agitation of popular rights and violent opposition to english schemes of taxation they were not indeed the equals of franklin then the agent of pennsylvania in london they had not his catholicity his breadth of knowledge his reputation or his genius but they were nevertheless foremost among american political orators and had great local influence the first overt act of hostility on the part of the english government in coercing the colonies was to send to boston the seat of disaffection a large body of soldiers in 1768 there were four regiments of British troops in Boston, doubtless with the view of intimidation, and to enforce the collection of duties. The English did not overrate the bravery of their troops or the abilities of their generals, but they did underrate the difficulties in conquering a population scattered over a vast extent of territory. They did not take into consideration the protecting power of nature, the impenetrable forests to be traversed, the mighty rivers to be crossed, the mountains to be climbed, and the coasts to be controlled nor did they comprehend the universal spirit of resistance in a vast country and the power of sudden growth in a passion for national independence they might take cities and occupy strong fortifications but the great mass of the people were safe on their inland farms and in their untrodden forests the americans may not have been unconquerable but english troops were not numerous enough to overwhelm them in their scattered settlements it would not pay to send army after army to be lost in swamps or drowned in rivers or ambushed and destroyed in forests it was in the earlier stages of the revolt against taxation in the autumn of 1764 that benjamin franklin was again sent to england to represent the province of pennsylvania in the difficulties which hung as dark a cloud over the whole land he had done well as a financial agent he might do still better as a diplomatist since he was patient prudent sagacious intelligent and accustomed to society besides having extraordinary knowledge of all the phases of american affairs and he probably was sincere in his desire for reconciliation with the mother country which he still deemed possible he was no political enthusiast like samuel adams desirous of cutting loose entirely from england 
but a wise and sensible man who was willing to wait for inevitable developments intensely patriotic but armed with weapons of reason and trusting in these alone until reconciliation should become impossible as soon as franklin arrived in england he set about his difficult task to reason with infatuated ministers and with all influential persons so far as he had opportunity but such were the prevailing prejudices against the colonists and such was the bitterness of men in power that he was not courteously treated he was even grossly insulted before the privy council by the solicitor general wedderburn one of those brow-beating lawyers so common in england one hundred years ago who made up in insolence what was lacking in legal ability grenville the premier was civil but stubborn and attempted to show that there was no difference between the external indirect taxation by duties on importations and the direct internal taxation proposed by the stamp act both being alike justifiable in march seventeen sixty five the bill was passed by an immense majority then blazed forth indignation from every part of america and the resolute colonists set themselves to nullify the tax laws by refraining from all taxable transactions franklin undismayed sedulously went about working for a repeal of the odious stamp law and at length got a hearing at the bar of the house of commons where he was extensively and exhaustively examined upon american affairs in this famous examination he won respect for the lucidity of his statements and his conciliatory address it soon became evident that the stamp act could not be enforced no one could be compelled to buy stamps or pay tariff taxes if he preferred to withdraw from all business transactions where homespun do without british manufactures and even refrain from eating lamb that flocks of sheep might be increased and the wool used for homespun cloth it was in march seventeen sixty six that franklin after many months of shrewd wise and extraordinarily skilful work with tongue and pen and social influence had the satisfaction of seeing the stamp act repealed by parliament and the bill signed by the unwilling king although he was at all possible disadvantage as being merely the insignificant agent of distant and despised colonists his influence in the matter cannot be exaggerated he made powerful friends and allies and never failed to supply them with ample ammunition with which to fight their own political battles in which his cause was involved on the repeal of the stamp act grenville was compelled to resign and his place was taken by lord north an amiable but narrow-minded man utterly incapable of settling the pending difficulties lord shelburne a friend of the colonies of which he had the charge was superseded by lord hillsborough an irish peer of great obstinacy who treated franklin very roughly and of whom the king himself soon tired lord dartmouth who succeeded him might have arranged the difficulties had he not been hampered by the king who was inflexibly bent on taxation in some form and on pursuing impolitic measures against the exhortations of chatham barre conway camden and other far-reading statesmen who foresaw what the end would be meantime in seventeen seventy franklin was appointed agent also for massachusetts bay and about the same time for new jersey and georgia schemes for colonial taxation were rife and although the stamp act had been withdrawn as impracticable the principle involved was not given up by the english government nor accepted by the american people franklin was kept busy in seventeen seventy three franklin was further impeded in his negotiations by mischievous letters which governor hutchinson of massachusetts had written to the colonial office this governor was an able man a new englander by birth but an inveterate tory always at issue with the legislature whose acts he had the power to veto indiscreetly rather than maliciously he represented the prevailing discontents in the worst light and considerably increased the irritation of the english government 
Franklin in some way got possession of these inflammatory letters and transmitted a copy to a leading member of the Massachusetts General Court, as a matter of information, but with the understanding that it should be kept secret. It leaked out, however, of course, and the letters were printed. A storm of indignation in Massachusetts resulted in a petition for the removal of Governor Hutchinson and Lieutenant Governor Oliver, which was sent by the House of Representatives to Franklin for presentation to the government. While, on the other hand, a torrent of obloquy overwhelmed the diplomatist in England, who was thought to have stolen the letters, although there was no evidence to convict him. Franklin's situation in London now became uncomfortable. He was deprived of his office of Deputy Postmaster General of the Colonies, which he had held since 1753, was virtually discredited and generally snubbed. His presentation of the petition afforded an opportunity for his being publicly insulted at the hearing appointed before the Committee for Plantation Affairs, while the press denounced him as a fomenter of sedition. His work in England was done, and although he remained there some time longer, on the chance of still being of possible use, he gladly availed himself of an opportunity in early 1775 to return to America. Before his departure, however, Lord Chatham had come to his rescue when he was one day attacked with bitterness in the House of Lords, and pronounced upon him this splendid eulogium. If, said the great statesman, I were Prime Minister and had the care of settling this momentous business, I should not be ashamed to call to my assistance a person so well acquainted with American affairs, one whom all Europe ranks with our Boyles and Newtons, as an honor not to the English nation only, but to human nature itself. From this time, 1775, no one accused Franklin of partiality to England. He was wounded and disgusted, and he now clearly saw that there could be no reconciliation between the mother country and the colonies, that differences could be settled only by the last appeal of nations. The English government took the same view and resorted to coercion, little dreaming of the difficulties of the task. This is not the place to rehearse those coercive measures or to describe the burst of patriotic enthusiasm which swept over the colonies to meet the issue by the sword. We must occupy ourselves with Franklin. On his return to Philadelphia, at the age of sixty-nine, he was most cordially welcomed. His many labors were fully appreciated, and he was immediately chosen a member of the Second Continental Congress, which met on the 10th of May, 1775. He was put on the most important committees, and elected Postmaster General. He was also selected as one of the committee to draft the Declaration of Independence. It does not appear that he was one of the foremost speakers. He was no orator, but his influence was greater than that of any other one man in the Congress. He entered heart and soul into the life and death struggle which drew upon it the eyes of the whole civilized world. He was tireless in committee work, he made long journeys on the busyness of the Congress, to Montreal, to Boston, to New York. He spent the summer of 1776 as chairman of the first constitutional convention of the state of Pennsylvania. On every hand his resources were in demand and were lavishly given. It was universally felt at the beginning of the struggle that unless the colony should receive material aid from France, the issue of the conflict with the greatest naval and military power in Europe could not succeed. Congress had no money, no credit, and but scant military stores. The Continental troops were poorly armed, clothed, and fed. Franklin's cool head, his knowledge, his sagacity, his wisdom, and his patriotism marked him out as the fittest man to present the cause in Europe and in September 1776 he was sent to France as an envoy to negotiate a treaty of amity and commerce between France and the United States. With him were joined Arthur Lee and Silas Dean, the latter having been sent some months previously in a less formal way to secure the loan of money, ammunition, and troops. End of section 4